0: Well, kia ora, hello, and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Okay, are we on? Yeah, hey, good morning. Hey, thank you for that. Wow, you can feel the presence of God on that prayer. So thank you. Um, Okay, my only concern really with this morning is that I may push the boundaries of time. So if it really comes to it, guys on this side, can I get an extra five minutes? Like if I need that extra five minutes, can I get that choice? Guys in the middle, do you mind if I go that extra five minutes? Yeah, guys on this side, do you mind if I go that extra five minutes? So um, yeah, we've been looking at uh, the big story of scripture. And uh, it's essentially... I'm going to stick to my notes as much as possible because there's a heap to get through. So, um, Last week, we started looking at this. We call it the meta-narrative. It's essentially the big story of Scripture into which every little part of Scripture kind of finds its place and its context. Um, We said the Bible isn't just one book, but it's a collection of texts written by a heap of different people at different times uh, for different reasons, and yet despite this seeming disparity, the Bible is one united whole uh, that talks about God, creation, and humanity. We said um, that this story stretches from the beginning of your time all the way up to our future destiny. So even though it's quite a long story, it can be broken down into chunks, much like acts of a play. You know, there are various scenes and characters involved in each, but they all contribute to the whole. And then when the story really changes gear, we start a new act. And the model we've been using is N.T. Wright's Six Acts of Scripture. And the six acts are these. Creation, Fall, Israel... Jesus, church, and new creation. And essentially the story so far is this. So,
1: what's the story of the Bible? Well, it
2: begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world
1: and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. and They are made as God's image.
2: Which means that they are commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This
1: is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how?
2: Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that is represented by a fruit tree. So, humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them.
1: And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple, take the fruit. It will give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms.
2: And so they seize this knowledge and as a result they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted
1: human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah.
2: Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of
1: humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not
2: go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God.
1: Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in.
2: And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile.
1: And that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story
2: wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right
1: choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends and these promises are left hanging.
0: Mm. That's where we finished last week. So last week, we talked about how Adam and Eve had the choice in Eden to either choose God's definition of right and wrong and take the tree of life or to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and seize autonomy for themselves and declare for themselves what they think is good. Uh, And we saw how no system of sacrifices or laws is sufficient to help us redeem that, this broken relationship. Uh, God promised he would do something new. He would take our hearts of stone and he would give us hearts of flesh. And that's where the Old Testament finishes. And so this is where we pick up the story as we move from Act 3, Israel, in towards Act 4, Jesus. And I just want to start with a prayer. So Father, thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Lord, I pray that your anointing um, would lace the words that I say, that it would connect with hearts, uh, that we would each be uh, better shaped and formed in your image and likeness, Lord, that we would learn from this morning and that it would draw us closer to you. Amen. All right. (laughs)
2: dark in the shadows light has come in the quiet in the dead of
0: Feedback on the music uh, last week. Most people really loved it. There were a couple people that were like, What was that about? But I guess that's just their way of telling me they're uncultured. <laughs> yeah, you heard me, Sharplin. So um, let's talk about Jesus then. John 1 3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. Because Jesus didn't begin to exist when he was born to Mary. Yeah, he always was. He is the second person of the Godhead, the Son. And he was involved even before creation. Paul says in Colossians very clearly, he says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything, in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything was created through him and for him. And he existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. I mean, that's pretty explicit that he has always existed. And when you combine passages like this with other incarnation passages and say John 1 and Philippians 2, it's very clear that Jesus is as eternal as God himself. And although Jesus did not appear in the flesh until the Gospels, the Old Testament is absolutely chock full of references to him. So we're going to have a look at four ways that we actually see Jesus in the Old Testament. And the first is this... Oh, there we go Uh, jesus is specifically prophesied so sometimes a figure um, will that kind of represents freedom and and faithfulness will, will really stuff up and mess up and in the middle of that failure you get this promise of one who will do better and it points towards jesus and we'll look at some examples so first of all adam and eve you know they're created in god's image and this is supposed to be this brilliant harmony harmony between god and humanity but obviously they sin and they rebel Um, And in that moment, God promises that one day a child from Eve will crush the serpent and redeem humanity. Uh, King David, he's the righteous king and he's supposed to do right, but he stuffs up. And in the middle of that, Samuel prophesies and says that one day a faithful king will rise from his family line and lead Israel towards faithfulness. Thirdly, Israel, who is supposed to be this chosen nation and a light to all other nations, they end up rejecting god and going into exile and in that place isaiah prophesies that a messiah would one day come to emerge from the surviving remnant who would be wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father and prince of peace and of course jesus is all of these he is the faithful king and the messiah who defeated evil okay secondly Jesus is mirrored in type of Christ figures. So these are people in the Old Testament who do something or live a certain way that reflects the story that Jesus is going to then later fulfill. So um, let's start off with Adam. Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus is called the last Adam, and Paul referred to Adam who was a type of the one who was to come in Romans. So clearly, Adam is a type of Christ. So how does that work? Well, Adam was commissioned in the same three roles that Jesus were, as prophet, as priest, and as king. As prophet, he was trusted with God's word and command and he was supposed to share this word with his wife and his children and to keep it faithfully. As priest, uh, he was trusted with God's command to, uh, to care for creation and to uh, mediate God's presence and to expand humanity by having children. And as king, he was given dominion as the servant king over creation. So prophet, priest and king as we see in Jesus. Secondly, Isaac. Is a type of christ this is abraham's son and he is a promised child he is born miraculously and he is willing to sacrifice his life at the request of his father and he carries the wood for the sacrifice up mount moriah and that is where jerusalem is built it's very likely it's the same hill that jesus later carries the wood of the cross up the same hill to give his life and like isaac it is god who saves him from destruction Uh, thirdly another type of christ is moses Moses saves Israel which is symbolic of God's people and he takes them out of slavery in Egypt which is symbolic of sin uh, and he takes them through the Red Sea which is symbolic of death and resurrection that's why the Red Sea is linked with baptism this idea if you go down into the water and you come out of the water parallels Moses taking them through the water and into resurrection life the promised land the promised redemption that we all have so you have the whole story of Jesus redemption mirrored in the story of Moses he's a type of Christ figure Now, you could have a look at other people like Melchizedek, the high priest king, or David, the one with an eternal throne, or Esther, the mediator who saves God's people, or uh, Boaz, the kingsman redeemer. There are so many types of Christ, and Jesus takes them all, and he fills that role, and he says, look, this is all pointing to me. Okay, thirdly, Jesus is foreshadowed in patterns. So let's have a look at some easy ones. So there's the sacrificial system. We kind of explored this last week, but essentially in Israel, if you did something wrong, if you sinned, you placed that sin on an animal and it died in your place. And there were several festivals and one of them was um, involved the scapegoat. And the priest would place the sins of the whole nation on the scapegoat and then send it out into the wilderness to take the sins of the nation away. And of course, Jesus died in our place as our sacrifice. He was our sacrificial lamb. And like the scapegoat, he takes the sins of the whole world away. Secondly, uh, you have the Passover lamb. This one is really key. So in the Exodus story, the final plague on Egypt is the angel of death, is death itself, synonymous with evil, the, the consequences of evil. And to be saved from death, you had to take a lamb without blemish, kill it without breaking its bones and wiping its blood on the wooden posts of your door. Sounds graphic, but of course, while this festival was being celebrated in Jerusalem, Jesus was being crucified at the same moment. And he was killed, our blameless lamb. And his bones were not broken. And as they were wiping the blood on the doorposts of their house, his blood was running down the wooden posts of the cross. It's a powerful analogy. Thirdly, the temple. Uh, this uh, This incredibly significant building was the means by which Israel connected with God. It contained his very presence in the Holy of Holies. It was that sacred overlapping space between heaven and earth. Jesus was God's presence personified on the earth for us he is the space between and it's through his saving work that heaven and earth overlap in our own lives shortly before Jesus arrest uh, and crucifixion he goes to the temple and he drives out the the traders and the exchanges and they say you know by what authority do you have to do this and he says tear down this temple and three days later I'll build it up again and he's talking about himself and his own death and resurrection and he's paralleling the temple system with himself it's a pattern of who he is and of course when he dies it's the temple veil that tears into that's that thing that was dividing god from humanity it's no longer there because jesus has fulfilled what the temple stood for okay fourthly and this one might surprise you jesus makes some personal appearances in the old testament Ooh. Okay, where are you going with this one? Well, let's start easy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And then there's a fourth figure. And uh, he is described as like the Son of God. And it's capitalized, which tells you this is not just an angel. Secondly, the major prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Daniel, sorry, all had visions of God. They all had visions of God, and they all saw him as a human figure sitting on a throne. Who would that be? And thirdly, most significantly, you have the angel of the Lord. Now, this one is a little bit bit more complicated, but the angel of the Lord is essentially a supernatural being that is Yahweh made visible before the incarnation. It's an angelic type being who speaks as if he was Yahweh. So, for example, uh, he speaks to Israel and says, I brought you up out of Egypt And I led you into the land, which I have sworn to your fathers. And I have said, I will never break my covenant with you. I mean, there's little doubt that it's God speaking. Likewise, it's the angel of the Lord who meets Hagar in the wilderness. And when she calls him God, he doesn't resist it. Whereas other angels always refuse worship. In Exodus 23, God says, The angel of the Lord will lead the Israelites to the promised land, and my name is in him. It's the angel of the Lord that stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. And if you know that story, you probably thought, oh, no, God stopped Abraham. Yeah, God did stop Abraham. It was the angel of the Lord. He interacts with Balaam in Numbers, with Gideon in Judges, with Elijah in 1 Kings, and David in 1 Chronicles. So it's this complex being that the biblical authors take pains to show is both distinct from Yahweh and is Yahweh. And perhaps we see it clearest with Moses and the burning bush. Here, Moses encounters the burning bush, And it's described as containing the angel of the Lord. But as soon as he approaches it, it is described as containing Yahweh and then God. Jesus later referred to himself as I am, the very name given at that moment in that conversation. And he also said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So Tim Mackey of Bible Project summarizes that the angel of the Lord is the glory of God of Yahweh appearing as a human. Did anyone know that before? Maybe some people, maybe not everyone. So um, if we had more time, we could also look how Jesus is foreshadowed in covenants, you know, between Noah, then Abraham, then Israel, then David, and then the promised new covenant. We could look at the many messianic prophecies that talk about, you know, what he would be like through the major and the minor prophets. And we can look at the prophetic Psalms and Proverbs and other passages that describe Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. So. It's worth mentioning that these foreshadows and types uh, they're not scripture twisting by a post resurrection church trying to dispel this idea of a violent God in the Old Testament and a loving God in the New Testament it's not it's not that it's not contorting scripture instead we just kind of didn't really understand about these things until we saw Jesus in the flesh um, but he's there he's present through the whole Old Testament when Philip meets the eunuch uh, in Acts. And he, he's, he preaches Jesus to him from the prophet Isaiah, and then goes through the scriptures. And Jesus himself is walking on the road to Emmaus with two Christians. And they're, you know, they're upset and everything. He's like, and he reveals himself. You know, the Bible says, if I can find it, beginning with the law and the prophets, uh, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. He was always there. Okay. Hunter and Wellum summarize in their book the Old Testament is written in such a way as to perfectly portray the greatness of our problem and the greatness of God's grace in Christ. Now last week we had a look at the greatness of our problem. All this stuff around choosing autonomy instead of life, about not being able to save ourselves, of broken relationship and our need for a savior, our inability to follow God because our hearts are evil. Yeah? Acts 4 Jesus is the beginning of the redemption of that. This is the greatness of of God's grace in Christ in the flesh. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection perfectly fulfilled every foreshadow and type that God had been revealing progressively all along. Jesus was the good news that humanity had been waiting for. We're gonna watch a little video here by um, The Bible Project which talks about the gospel of the good news. And then we'll, we'll jump in again after that with Act 5.
1: There's this beautiful poem, it's in the book of Isaiah.
2: The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us?
1: Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone.
2: Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed.
1: Everything seems lost.
2: But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills we see a messenger and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news! And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes, the feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message.
1: What's the message?
2: That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne and bring peace.
1: And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now, in the New Testament, we find this same
2: phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel.
1: So, when Christians say, do you believe the gospel? They mean, do you believe the news?
2: But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's
1: kingdom. So, Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns.
2: Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down
1: kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him.
2: Yeah, so for example, there is this really interesting story where there is a high-ranking Roman officer and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet
1: had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And
2: all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him king.
1: And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king.
2: That's right. But for Jesus... This is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews.
1: Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe.
2: He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross.
1: How beautiful are the feet that bring good news.
2: And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated And that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself, and that he's conquered it with his life
1: and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom,
2: and to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love.
0: Mm. Bible projects it way better than I can so I thought it was worth taking a little bit of time to do that okay so there's a lot more that could be said about Jesus but uh, in the interest of time and trying to keep the story going with the meta-narrative we're going to probably leave it there however if you want to meet Jesus or you want to know him better I would urge you chat to some people here this is full of people in this room that love Jesus and follow Jesus and they would love to tell you all about him um, okay so colossians 1 that we quoted earlier it doesn't just talk about how jesus always existed from the beginning it actually looks forward and if we remember this analogy here from nt right of the mountain poking out of the clouds we see the whole old testament is everything pointing up towards jesus and the new testament is all shaped by the impact of the cross and uh, and so colossians continues on and says christ is also the head of the church which is his body which we now which today we're using as act five and he is the beginning, the firstborn of all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. All right. So let's jump into Act 5. She's seen empires come and go.
2: Watch the kingdom's children grow. Sparks and
1: embers far from home. Born to shine. Our chain is a lock.
0: challenge and you're getting partway through and it's so meaty and intense you're like man i need a drink that's what the music is about man it gives you a break from all of this high intensity stuff i was listening to a podcast and they said you know listening to nt right talk is like trying to take a sip from a fire hydrant it's like it's intense and i think sometimes i come across that way so i give you these little breaks to breathe okay so the church act five this is where we come in yeah act five has been happening uh, it's happening today and it's been on since the resurrection. Um, when Jesus left, he promised to send the Holy Spirit, which is essentially God's presence at work in the world. But now it wasn't just his presence at work in the world. This was his presence filling us and redeeming and shaping us, changing our hearts from stone to flesh. Uh, and the disciples who first receive it, they go from being timid and afraid and hiding to being bold and performing miracles, preaching, traveling missionaries. You know, they face persecution, prison and torture and even death for the message of hope and the gospel that they're bringing. But um, despite all this persecution, the message of the gospel gathers momentum and church communities pop up all over the place. And uh, the movement that we call Christianity today, it hasn't stopped because the Holy Spirit empowers us. It's a game changer. It does what we cannot do through our will or the law. So to explain it simply, if when you accept Jesus and you surrender your autonomy to him, and you say, I choose your right and wrong, I choose your plan for my life, then you receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what the prophets meant by taking our soft, uh, giving us soft hearts. And it doesn't make you an Avengers-like superhuman. You may not even feel different. But the process of redemption can begin. And the more we repeatedly choose to follow Jesus instead of our own way, the more we become like him. Yeah, we choose to forgive an injustice instead of seeking revenge we choose to speak kindly instead of chewing someone out we choose to serve instead of wanting the royal treatment you know our hearts are changed the more we do this over time we find that to forgive to serve and to love and to be generous and merciful to overlook a suffered injustice these end up becoming our default responses not conscious choices yeah we think differently we act differently we speak differently and the more that we spend time with Jesus through scripture and worship and prayer and coming into church and so on, the more we become like him. Yeah, Paul says that we become new creations, that we have our minds renewed. We become mirrors of his nature and character again instead of being our own portraits promoting self. You know, and if you're unsure what that looks like in real terms, then get to know some people here who have been following Jesus for a long time. You'll find there's something different about them. Because following Jesus and being the church, they're kind of synonymous. And uh, it's about stepping out of the kingdom of this world based on self and into the kingdom of God based on loving others. And it's also a two-way process. While the Spirit is changing us on the inside, He's also changing the world through us, around us. And uh, and in this dog-eat-dog, self-seeking, hierarchical world, illogical or unmerited acts of kindness and love and generosity and justice, it stands out. It speaks volumes. And it taps into this sense that we all have as people that this is the way the world is supposed to be, you know? So if I was to phrase this more theologically correct, it would be that we partner with God in both our own transformation and in the renewal of creation. God calls us to live now on this earth as if heaven is already here, to live like Jesus lived, to see the world, society and culture and everything in them through the lens of this big story that we're talking about. And to partner with God's spirit at work. Wheat bix challenge. Big meaty stuff. But we'll keep going. And, uh, and the, information, the invitation sorry, to do this. To give your life to Jesus. And to embrace his transforming spirit. Guys, that is open to everybody. Everywhere. At all times. And it always has been. But if you know your church history. You'll know that we haven't always done the finest job of representing the good news. And the transformation of the spirit. Now, at this point, I was at a crossroads in my notes because I would love to jump into 2,000 years of church history with you all, but I will have to leave that for another day. Sadly, this is my only slide on church history. (laughs) For now, it is enough to say that to highlight the gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit, which is available to us all through Jesus, and that will empower us to live as lights in a dark place. To spread the good news of Jesus through our words, our actions, our lifestyles, our choices, the way we spend our time and our money. To disciple others, to grow in faith, to be a part of a community of believers. It's all good stuff because, guys, we are the church. We are the church. Act 5 is about being Jesus' representatives, empowered and transformed by the Spirit at work in us and through us. I think there's one more thing to say about Act 5. Act 5. Is that it's an in-between stage because Jesus accomplished everything that he needed to on the cross to completely redeem everything the restoration of all things and yet we still live in a broken world full of pain evil lives yes suffering abounds so theologians call this time the now and the not yet it's almost like we're holding a winning lotto ticket and we're handing it in to get it cashed in now we've got the rights to be millionaires, but we don't have the money in the bank just yet. Yeah, we're in that in-between stage, the now but the not yet. Uh, it's the fullness of the reality is still ahead of us. We're living in the shadow of the dawn. But one day, one day things will change. Here's good news. Just as Israel had to wait patiently and eagerly for the Messiah and the new covenant, so we must be faithful in our mission to love God and to seek the life of the world one day jesus will return as he promised and the final great phase of existence will begin all right i'm going to do something very unorthodox for sunday morning i'm going to give you a one minute break because we've covered a lot of ground today and previously chat to someone sitting next to you what is something that has just popped out to you that you didn't know before that you've discovered because where we're going next in act six gets a little bit gnarly so let's take a little break see what you've discovered i'll see you in one minute or less all right that was your cue so new creation here we go if you ask most people what do you think christians believe they're likely to say something like this well you're born and you live a life and you believe in god and try and do what he says you should probably read his bible and go to church and then you die and jesus will decide whether you go to heaven or hell forever right and if you look at this you might be thinking yeah that basically is what i believe as a christian Um, but there is a problem with this model and that's the bible (laughs) because the bible and the teachings of jesus don't say this in fact they don't really say anything like this this is not the story of scripture Uh, sadly this common conception that this life is some kind of pilgrimage a place of suffering that we just kind of need to endure and get through and it's almost like a testing ground to see if you're really faithful if you really meant it when you said you gave your life to jesus you know we're in some foreign land but ultimately one day hey we're going to heaven we're going where we really belong yeah we're going home escaping this world ends up becoming the ultimate goal yeah this is a remnant echo of a rather uninformed late medieval european theology and unfortunately Uh, this was a time when scriptural understanding and literacy were pretty low and it was also when the western church was heavily investing in a lot of architecture and artwork and uh, with a particular focus on judgment and heaven and hell and because these great works were painted by the great art masters they have survived and been at the forefront of what we've seen for a very long time Uh, and unfortunately it just doesn't align with scripture but it's still as you can see affects popular thinking today most people think this is actually what christians believe Um, but it's not what we see in the bible so okay what do we see well let's let's jump in so we don't get a high resolution step-by-step guide of everything that's going to happen and how but to quote nt wright's analogy from last week we do see signposts pointing to fog we get the impression so let's straighten some of this out one of the uh, major problems is confusion over the word heaven so just because we see the word heaven in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's referring to where we go when we die. Uh, the natural sky is called heaven, and so is outer space very often. Uh, the dimension where God dwells is heaven, where his throne room is and where he operates. Uh, then there is the kingdom of heaven that we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And this is actually talking about this earth living now the way Jesus teaches us to on earth. Uh, then there is the reunited heaven and earth, where uh, Jesus will one day reign as the eternal king, and this is also referred to as heaven. But for clarity, this morning, I'm gonna refer to this last one as new creation. Um, In fact, the only thing that is never directly referred to as heaven is the place we go when we die. And this might come as a shock, but the Bible actually has very little to say about where you go when you die. It does say that you go to be with Christ, It says this in about at least three places, maybe four. Uh, But none of them are references to streets of gold or pearly gates or seas of glass or mansions or rivers of life or anything else that we usually attribute with heaven as the location or the the destiny of the righteous dead. So what is it? What does it mean then? Well, what do we see? We see that it means to be with Christ. Uh, And uh, with Christ is what the Bible says. And all that we know really is that it is far better than the earthly life. Uh, that Paul desires it and that he would rather be there. Here we go. I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, okay, some people might be freaking out, thinking like, okay, wait a minute, you're telling me the Bible doesn't tell me what's going to happen to me when you die? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, first of all, if you're freaking out, think about it this way. If I say to my son Asher, this is him there, if I say to him, hey, buddy, we're going on holiday, he doesn't say, where are we going? What are we doing? When do we leave? What shall I pack? Will there be a pool? Like, what's the weather like? How long are we staying for? Uh, Do I know, have I been there before? No, what does he say? He's six. He says, yay, going on holiday. If it's with Christ and it's far better and Paul desires it, then we can just be like, all right, whatever it is, I'm up for it. God, I trust you. Yeah, he trusts me. You can trust him. Whatever this life after death is like, it's not the end of the story. It is a temporary state. Uh, The much, much bigger story in Scripture is what happens next, what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. Namely, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the restoration of all things, a.k.a. new creation. Okay, you could hear a pin drop in here at the minute, and I can see the people sharpening pitchforks and lighting torches. So let me just jump in (laughs) with some clarification. So, God prophesied through Isaiah, right? Let's go back to the Old Testament. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, for the former things have passed away, uh, will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. And then he says later, the new heavens and the earth which I will make will endure before me. Peter preached until the time for the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then in his epistle, he said, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Paul says, for creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Jesus himself said, truly I say to you, in the renewal of all things, where the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and he goes on. So the whole Bible actually concludes with John's vision of what new creation will be like in the book of Revelation. Yet he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And John's description goes on for the final two chapters of the Bible. And this is where we find pearly gates, streets of gold, river of life, and so on. But this is all part of new creation. This is a future point. So new creation is the big theme of what God is doing. He promises it in act two, the fall. It's prophesied about in act three, Israel. Jesus gave us glimpses of it in act four. And then... um, was the first to resurrect as a foretaste of what was to be. It was preached about in Act 5, the church. It is Act 6, and it's a restoration and a return to Act 1, creation. You can't get away from new creation. This is the big story of Scripture. Act 6, new creation, is the rejoining of heaven and earth, the renewal and the restoration of all things, where God's space and human space overlap entirely once again, and where evil is no more. What's fascinating to note, I love this, is that when these spaces overlap originally in, in, in Acts 1, Eden is a garden, right? It's entirely the creative work of God. But when we look at it in Act 6, new creation, it's a garden city, yeah? New Jerusalem is full of trees and the river of life at the center and all these things, the tree of life at the throne room of God. But it's a city. It's a collaboration of God and redeemed humanity's creative endeavors combined. I think that's pretty exciting yeah in this new heaven new earth imagery uh, what's often thought of this is often what we think of when we say you know this is where we go when we die but it's a future state after the return of jesus after the final judgment now if you're still wondering okay well what's that going to be like well nt Wright, the one who we quote all the time i found you a little clip of him speaking and you'll realize just how smart he is the moment he opens his mouth Uh, and he explains a little bit about what is heaven like referring to new heaven new created heaven
3: it's, it's not entirely clear, but one thing is clear and that is that those who belong to Jesus Christ in the present will actually, and I hesitate to say this because it sounds arrogant or triumphalistic, but it's what the New Testament says, those who belong to Jesus Christ will be running the new world as God's stewards, but take away all the sting of the idea of running things as big wicked bosses sort of forcing everybody to do this or that, Because the model of leadership and of of ruling which is there is that of Jesus himself, is that of the gentle shepherd, is that of the steward, is that of the one who says, if anyone wants to be great they must be your servant. So again and again in Paul and in Revelation and elsewhere there is this sense that uh, if you have learned in this life to look after the bit of the world that God has given you to look after, which might be your own body, might be your family, might be a business, might be a church, whatever then this is preparing you to help God look after his new creation. And that's awesome, and actually I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on that, but it is right there in the texts. And one of the loveliest lines in the text, right at the end of the Bible, it says that out of the New Jerusalem there flows a river, and the river has trees on either side of it, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So there is a project of healing in God's new world. What that means, I really have very little idea, but it sounds to me full of hope and possibility.
0: Mate, good stuff. Pretty exciting, eh? <clears throat> so, if you want to understand this a bit more, then I would highly recommend Heaven and Earth by the Bible Project. You can find that on their website or YouTube. Uh, and if you're really keen, then there's always surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, which is a life shaping book. Um, Okay, but you may be sitting here with questions, depending on how much you kind of already knew about all this, uh, such as, assuming we die before Jesus returns, how do we get from being with Christ to living in new creation? Or maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, return of Jesus? He's coming back? Okay, tell me a bit more about that. Or what do you mean by the final judgment? Okay, so we can answer some of these things by piecing together the signposts in the fog in scripture. And we get a reasonably good picture. So let's have a look at some. Now, I'm gonna go too fast for you to read all these, but if you wanna check these out and do a bit more study or whatever, pause the live stream and and look them up for yourself. So first of all, no one knows when Jesus will return, okay? Not even Jesus, only the Father knows when it will be. Jesus, when he does come, it will be quick and unexpected. It will take us by surprise. It seems he's gonna come from the east. There will be a trumpet blast and the voice of an archangel announcing the return of Jesus. Jesus is going to return, and whatever it looks like, it will be full of power and glory. It will be with the clouds, and he will be accompanied by his angels. Everyone on earth is going to see him return. His return is going to mark the beginning of the final judgment, and he's going to bring with him a reward for the faithful the dead are gonna be raised back to life, the righteous first and then the unrighteous and be gathered to Jesus. And then the living will join them and, meet ev- and everyone will meet Jesus in the air. At this point, we then get the judgment and Jesus is gonna judge everyone and he's gonna separate the sheep, the righteous sheep from the unrighteous goats by judging their hearts and he's gonna repay each person for how they have lived. Now, the judgment can seem like a bit of a scary thing and that's because it kind of is. Uh, but it's like a righteous judge finally ruling in favor of a widow who's been victimized and exploited for years. That's good news if you're the widow. Yeah, it's, it, everything is going to be restored to her, plus compensation. But it's bad news if you're the exploiting perpetrator. So it really depends on who you are and how you've lived, whether in line with God's nature and character, loving and seeking the life of the world, or pursuing self at the cost of others. Because for some, this is going to mean a crown of righteousness and a heavenly reward and eternal life in new creation. And for others, it's going to look quite different. Okay, after the judgment, evil is destroyed, heaven and earth are reunited, and new creation is finally established. New heaven, it's going to be an imperishable existence, no corruption, no decay, no death. And those who live and reign as part of that will have imperishable resurrected bodies just like jesus already has and even those who were alive when jesus returned will have their earthly bodies changed 1 corinthians 15. so this last point is one thing that is actually really clear in all of this this we could still speculate a lot about how this all kind of works um but this is really clear this idea of a resurrected body While there are three or four verses in the Bible that talk about where we go when we die to be with Jesus, there's around a hundred verses that talk about us being resurrected. The Bible says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits or a foretaste of what we will experience when we are resurrected. And it compares our future resurrected bodies to his resurrected body. Once you start looking for it, guys, you will find the resurrection is everywhere through scripture, even in the Old Testament. So this focus on the resurrection and new creation, and restoration, instead of escaping this place of trial and going to be with Jesus. I mean, it's it's nothing new, right? I'm not preaching heresy here. It's actually the traditional teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and through most of church history. But somehow it's kind of got forgotten in recent times. But the evidence is everywhere. In church cemeteries, people are buried facing east, so that they're facing Jesus when he returns and they resurrect to meet him. Uh, when we think about gravestones, we would think R.I.P. Rest in peace, as if the grave is our final end of rest. But up until late Victorian times, people were writing I.H.S. on their graves, which stands for, excuse my bad Latin, Isis Hominum Salvator," meaning Jesus, the Savior of men. Talking how he's going to save them from the grave, and many epitaphs end up with this little Latin phrase, resurgum, which means "I will arise." I know what's going on my gravestone. So let's try and piece all of this together. This is not a perfect slide, but it was kind of my best efforts. It kind of works like this. We live and we die. And assuming we are counted righteous, we go to be with Christ, which is far better. And that's in God's space. And when Jesus returns, we are resurrected into bodies like his, and we face the judgment. And we inherit eternal life, and we rule and we reign With him in new creation, in incorruptible existence. That is Act 6. Yeah, that is new creation. And I don't know about you, but I think that's way better than an eternity of playing harps on a cloud. (laughs) Yeah? Or even the modern version of heaven, some kind of eternal, ultra-materialistic, get-whatever-you-want kind of existence. Instead, we inherit eternal life and rule and reign with him in new creation. It's much bigger and better than what we've been sold. So there you have it, that's the big story of the Bible. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, new creation. How was that, was that all right? Yeah, Yeah, is that okay? Okay, we're there. Thank you. Um, Okay, so Father, thank you that this isn't a story, this is your story. And Father, it's not a story you tell, it's a story that you are weaving and have crafted Lord, that you have long planned, that you have always been invested in, have been molding and shaping and crafting, just as you did humanity at creation. And Father, I pray that you would connect our hearts with this story, that it wouldn't be something we learn with our minds, but it is a narrative by which we live our life, that we soak ourselves in it, that we make our decisions on life based on where you're taking creation, what you're doing in the world. And Father, help us to partner with you in your process of redemption that we can be your vessels for healing and redemption and restoring and bringing life, light in a dark place, Father. May we mirror again your nature and your character. Amen. And so guys, um, I wanted to chuck up an invitation for you. If, um, If today me talking about Jesus has kind of resonated with you and you're like, man, I don't really know Jesus. I've never really made that decision to follow him, but I really want to. Then that invitation is open to you today to embrace Jesus and choose him. And like we were talking about last week, choose life instead of self-autonomy, yeah? Or maybe secondly, Act 5 has spoken to you and you're thinking, man, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit at work in me, transforming me, changing me, renewing, restoring me, and then through me, making a difference in the world, maybe that's not something you ever think about and you'd like to and you want to invite God, help, help me to connect him with your Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I just feel dry. You know, I don't have that life that he's talking about. Then that's an invitation for you too. Or maybe Acts 6 has come as a bit, of a bit of a sucker punch and you weren't expecting that. And you're like, Lord, I'm, I'm not too sure what I do with all these pieces and fragments that I now think I hold with regards to myself. Help me to piece this together. Help me connect the Spirit of God in me with the message that's being shared here, Lord, and, and with what we see in your Word. Help me piece together a good theology that's based on life and restoration and new creation and how I can be a part of that. Maybe that's you. And there's an invitation for you there. Now, guys, what I'm not going to do is invite everyone up because, hey, we are the church, right? There's no magic space up here. This room is full of people that love the Lord and serve Him faithfully. And so what I want to suggest is, if you want prayer for any of these things, Act 4, Act 5, Act 6, then maybe just let someone know around you. In just a minute, we'll all stand up. Just let someone know. You can either raise your hand if you're not too confident who's near you, or if you've got a friend, maybe just tap them and say, hey, could you just pray for this? But that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to be the church. Yeah, we're going to be God's hand and feet among the other believers. Okay, so that's it from me. Bless you. Thank you for letting me speak and for giving me your attention. Um, have an awesome day. But let's stand as we finish the service today.